0: You're listening to audio from Ascend Church For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ visit AscendKC.org You know, I, I love origin stories Anybody like origin stories? I, I remember growing up in the 70s and 80s uh, and being completely mesmerized by Superman the movie the 1978 version of Christopher Reeve. Anybody familiar with that one? Still the best one out there, am I right? I mean, not only for the reason, don't say you're not, not only for the reason that Christopher Reeves portrayed that role masterfully, but also because it, it was so great in how it connected us to his origins, his beginnings. And as we open up our Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 13, if you would turn there in your Bibles, Acts chapter 13, we are going to get a glimpse into our origin story And my prayer is that you and I, as we look into this passage together, we will be stirred, we will be inspired to be a part of someone else's origin story. I want to begin by asking you a question this morning. How did God bring the good news of Jesus Christ into your life? I would like you to reflect on that for a moment. How did God bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to you? In Acts 13, we find a pivotal moment in the spread of the gospel as we witness its movement into the Gentile world. That's our world, by the way. And we're shown here through Luke's quill a piece of our origin story how God moved in history and through people to bring the gospel to you and to me today. And I'm going to answer our question for us this morning How did God bring the gospel into your life? He did it through preaching. And I'm not necessarily talking about what we're doing right now here with a man behind a pulpit. I'm really talking about what God does through people like you who understand that their primary calling while God has left them here on this earth is to cross over that threshold of silence and speak the good news of Jesus to someone else. It's someone who takes steps of initiative in the power of the Holy Spirit to open up their mouths and verbalize the gospel of message which brings words of life to another person. And if you do a quick scan through Acts chapter 13 and 14, one thing that will stand out to you as a theme or a pattern in those chapters is preaching and proclaiming the Word of God. I counted no less than 22 references pointing us to this reality, that preaching has always been the primary calling of the local church. I think the church has long understood this. But I also know that the church has an enemy. An enemy who is working very hard to move her off of her foundation, off of the primacy of this calling. And I think we need to be aware of that. What we see happening today in America is a drifting away from the church's primary calling... And what we're talking about here is the not-so-subtle shift away from the proclamational nature of our call, to be clear, that is bringing the gospel message of Jesus Christ to peoples and to places where he's not being proclaimed, toward what is termed now today an incarnational ministry, which has its central tenet, this idea of living the good news rather than preaching the good news. If you want to know more about that topic and how we've arrived at this place in our culture, I would encourage you to check out a great podcast from Dr. Owen Strand. It's called The Antithesis. Go on Apple Podcasts and look up the episodes on the negative world and on the winsomeness project. You'll have a great resource there for you. I read recently some interesting results from a recent poll that Barna Research Group did regarding American evangelical attitudes toward evangelism. For example, I want you to listen to this statement as I ask the guys to throw it up on the wall. In their poll, they concluded this statement, it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. How many practicing Christians do you suppose agreed with that statement in their study? And by practicing Christians, what we're talking about here are people who identify as Christians, people who say their Christian faith is very important to them, and they attend church. So I know that may not tell us the whole story. But how many do you suppose agreed with this statement on the wall? That it is wrong, that it is actually morally wrong to share your personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in the hopes that they would one day share your faith. And by the way, what are we talking about there? That's evangelism, isn't it? That's proclaiming Jesus The necessity of broadly and clearly proclaiming this unique message that God has entrusted to us as his people may seem obvious to all of us sitting here in this room, but not so to nearly half of the millennial practicing Christians that were polled. 47% of those polled agreed with the statement on the wall, that it's actually wrong to share your faith in that way. I just want you to let that sink in. What's fascinating about this research that's been done. Is that the same data indicates that near, while nearly half of practicing Christians believe evangelizing is wrong, ninety-six percent of that very same group polled say that part of my faith means being a witness about Jesus. So help me figure that one out. I mean, how does that work? How can a identifying Christian say that it's wrong on one hand to share your faith with someone of a different faith in the hopes that they will come someday to believe in your God? And at the same time, say that being a witness is a part of your faith. How do those dissonant ideas co-reside within the same person? How is that possible? And the answer, I think, lies in the drifting away that has taken place from the proclamational nature of our calling as followers of Jesus Christ. And let's just be very specific what we're talking about here. We're talking about verbally sharing the message of the Christ who was crucified, buried, and resurrected for our salvation, using words toward what is now termed today lifestyle evangelism. My son Wesley, who, by the way, just a few weeks ago got engaged... And since it's Father's Day, you can cheer. We're, we're, we're super excited for his fiance, Emily, to join the Heiser Nation. It's going to be great as our family grows. Wesley works for a company that specializes in the supplying of equipment that is used for the gathering of forensic evidence. So you guys seen crime shows, you know what I'm talking about. There's a lot of amazing advanced technology out there that aids detectives in the gathering and finding of evidence that's been left behind on the scene of a crime. And the equipment helps the detectives find the evidence, but then the detective's role is to look at that evidence that's been found and to give voice to it, to interpret it, to tell us what it is saying. And I think in some way this is how many professing believers today have redefined what it means to be a witness for Jesus. Rather than proclaim the truth of the gospel and risk offending someone who doesn't want to hear it, they would rather show Jesus to others through their life. And it's true. The life you and I lead should show transformation. We should be walking in the Spirit. We should bear the fruit of the Spirit that comes from a surrender to Jesus Christ. That much is certainly not in dispute. And I also agree that the world doesn't want to hear our message. The world doesn't want, people don't want to hear the gospel that will expose their sin and call them to an obedient response of humility. And repentance, But I would add, that is exactly what this world needs most. This world needs preachers. You see, we cannot shift the impetus of our witness onto the lost person as if it's their job to play the detective and look for evidence in your life and then to somehow give voice to what that evidence is trying to say in a way that it will lead them to Christ. It doesn't work that way. There is no such thing as a silent witness. And this whole adage that is so popular today... That says, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. It may sound nice, that is until you realize that it is actually, we have actually shifted away from the use of words. There's a large portion of evangelicals today that have almost completely abandoned the words of the gospel. I want you to hear Austin Gentry in his blog say, you can preach the gospel. If you say you can preach the gospel but only sometimes use words, it is to falsely imply that the gospel is not really words after all. And isn't that what we're seeing today in some ways? We're seeing a rejection of the true nature of our calling as disciples to boldly proclaim Christ in exchange for a much less controversial version, which calls for us to be a witness through being nice. And that just doesn't cut it, does it? I don't think that's a threat that we can ignore. And I'm burdened That the church has in some way lost sight of what her actual mission is and has replaced it, at least to some degree, with one that relies on a temporary transformation that we hope to bring to society through our own human efforts, our social justice movements. And other such things, and less and less on the unique, divine, and eternal transformation that is only possible as the Holy Spirit of God applies the Word of God to the blinded mind of an unbeliever so that they might see the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ and so be saved. And what I would like to do this morning with you as we go into our text in Acts chapter 13, verse 47, is to demonstrate to you that Paul clearly understood the nature of his calling to be proclamational. And so should we. This is the origin story of how the gospel came to us, how it reached us. And proclaiming Jesus Christ, church, is the only way we will will fulfill our calling. It's our mission. Before we continue, let's go to God for help. Let's pray. Father, I'm aware that this is a real battle that is waging today, right here in this place this morning. There is an enemy that does not want Christ to be seen today or to be proclaimed. And Lord, as we talk about the nature of what you're calling each of us to do this morning, we often face the fear of man, we face the fear of, of a rejection of our own inadequacies, and Lord, I admit, I feel that too. So Father, I just pray that you would encourage us this morning with your promise as we reflect on how you have graciously brought to us the good news of Jesus right into our lives through the obedience of believers who have preceded us. And then I pray, God, you would help us, you would strengthen us, Father, to join their company and to be proud of our Jesus, to speak of him to others, all for your glory and for the name of our Savior, we pray. Amen. Here in today's America, June is known as Pride Month, isn't it? A month in which a culture so filled with sinful pride not only practices open rebellion to God, but is also shaking its fist in defiance in the public square. And giving hearty approval to those who do such things. God's own symbol of covenant promise has been twisted into a symbol of open rebellion against our God. And it's sad, isn't it? But what's even sadder, perhaps, is how few Christians are truly proud of Jesus. And church, I think we need to take back June. We need to take back July and every single other month of the calendar year. And we need to declare them to be proud months, don't we? We need to be a people of God who are proud of our Jesus and a people of God who will, along with the Apostle Paul, as he said in Romans chapter 1, say we will not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The cross of Jesus Christ is the true symbol of inclusion. Do you believe that? Because at the foot of the cross, anyone who repents and believes can find forgiveness of their sins and eternal life in our God. That is the message this world needs. And so if we want to see lost people saved, we each need to answer that call to be proud of our Jesus in this world of pride. Acts chapter 13. Look at verse 47. Actually, we'll begin in verse 44 and read through 48. Acts chapter 13, 44 through 48. 48. Hear the word of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Verse 47, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Our goal together this morning is to be reminded of something I believe we already know. To reflect on what we know and then to, once again, respond to it in obedience. And I believe that our text this morning is driving me, is driving you, is driving every single one of us here this morning, individually, and all of us collectively, to be a local body that remembers our origin story. If we want to see more lost people saved, let me, let me just ask you instead, do you want to see more lost people saved? I didn't hear you. Do you want to see more lost people saved? Yes. Okay, Amen. May it be so. If that's the case, then we need to stick to what we know. It is not preach the gospel at all times and, if necessary, use words, is it? No, it is preach the gospel at all times and let your transformed life demonstrate the reality of the words you are proclaiming. And here's the big idea that we need to see this morning. Actually, it's not even an idea. It's a calling that God has laid on every single one of us, and that is this, you and I are called to proclaim the good news. And I want to encourage you this morning by showing you five ways that you and I are called to preach Jesus Christ. Number one, you can preach Christ confidently. You can preach him confidently. The the context in our passage here now is that Paul is preaching the gospel to a group of Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles, we know, is just another word for non-Jews, the peoples, the nations, and this text is part of the second discourse that Paul and Barnabas are giving at Antioch of Pisidia on their first missionary journey. If you read through verses 16 through 42, you'll see that it details their visit to the synagogue where there Paul stood up at the first opportunity, raised his hand, motioned, and began to preach confidently and boldly that Jesus was the promised Savior. He's preaching Christ confidently. Many, Luke tells us in verse 43, of the Jews and the devout converts to Judaism responded to that message in faith. And the very next week we're told that nearly the whole city, can you imagine that? The whole city comes out to hear the word of the Lord. Their preaching was creating quite a stir, wasn't it? But there was a group of Jews that didn't like it at all. They were jealous. They didn't like all this attention this new message was drawing. And so they opposed Paul and they reviled him. In the NIV, were, were, so, we're told they talked abusively to him. And isn't that what we fear? As believers, when we think about telling somebody about Jesus, we're afraid of the reaction that we'll get, the rejection, the words that we will receive. But listen, it's going to happen. I guarantee you, when you talk truth to someone, that will happen on occasion. I recently went to a, a sporting KC game a couple weeks ago with a couple of friends from church and our Romanian partner, Gabby, who was with us, and we were sitting in the section, and everybody's cheering for the team, and I, I was just shocked, honestly, at the uninhibited vitriol and abusive language that I heard hurled at the individuals on the field that were playing for the other team. It was clear that these folks in the stadium didn't know these individuals personally, they had no relationship to him, but that didn't stop them from being so abusive in their speech. And then I realized they were doing it because they wore the other jersey. Friends, that's the kind of thing we can expect, isn't it? When you realize that the anger, the rejection, the jealousy, the vitriol, it's not aimed at you, it's not aimed at me. It's because we're wearing the Savior's jersey. This is a reminder to all of us because no matter how nice and gentle that we try to be with people, There's a reality that's present. And you cannot underestimate the resistance of the proud human heart once that gospel light begins to expose their sin and show them who they really are and their need for Christ. It's a necessary pain. Paul and Barnabas demonstrate confidence because they wore the Savior's jersey. Luke writes in verse 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. They shake off the rejection they received from these Jews, and they turn to the Gentiles now in verse 47, and they say, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles. And this is our origin story. It's, and it begins with preaching right here. And before we dive any deeper into verse 47, I think it's going to be helpful if we, you know, take a trip backward in time as we turn forward in our Bibles all the way to Acts chapter 26. So if you would do that with me. Turn to Acts chapter 26. Acts 26 is one of my, my favorite passages in all of the New Testament for how it demonstrates so clearly the clarity of the call that Paul received from the Lord and his resolve to fulfill that calling. And in Acts chapter 26, Paul here has been given an opportunity to, tell, to uh, in his imprisonment to give a defense, to give his testimony before King Agrippa. And we just want to take the opportunity to listen in as he tells of his encounter many years prior with the risen Lord Jesus on that pivotal day in his life when he was torn away from his old life as a persecutor of Christians and was set on a new path, a new track with a new mission of preaching Jesus Christ. And I want you to see in Acts twenty-six here that you and I can preach confidently for three reasons. We can preach Christ confidently for three reasons. Look at verse twelve. Paul says, In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. Now let's just point out here that what Saul, as he used to be called, what he did here, he did because he was authorized, right? He was commissioned to put an end to these pesky Christians who were peddling lies about a risen Jesus. He was a missionary, you could say, of sorts, on a mission to chase down these early Christians. But everything is about to change as Paul continues. Look at verse 13. At midday, O king, I saw a light. On the way I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. So it's high noon. I have a hard time picturing anything that's higher, or brighter than the sun at high noon. But here we realize that this is the glorious radiance of the risen Lord that is utterly overwhelming Paul and his companions and throwing them flat to the ground. Verse 14, and when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. I don't know if he laughed. But this was quite a surprise. This was unexpected, wasn't it? Saul had been convinced that the claims of these Christ followers about a resurrection was all a lie, that these Christians deserved to be punished. He was zealous, and he was was sincere in his belief. He was authorized and commissioned to pursue what he believed, and he did so often with a raging fury, didn't he? But in an instant, the light of the world, brighter than the sun overwhelms him, utterly bringing to nothing all of his resistance to what these same people he had been persecuting were preaching and proclaiming. In an instant, Jesus can take the whole course of a person's life and turn it all the way around. Do you believe that? That's what he does. Our puny human rebellion dissolves into utter nothingness in the face of the glory of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Look what happens, verse 16. The Lord Jesus says to to Paul, Rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Okay, so now Saul, who had been sent, who had been authorized, who had been Commissioned by the chief priest to eradicate these Christians and their message, finds himself standing under the authority of this risen Jesus with a new mission, a new authority, a new calling, and he's being sent. Pay attention now to the nature of his calling. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And Jesus here is telling Paul to preach a message of repentance and faith. How do we know that? We don't even really have to guess because Paul explains it further as he goes on before Agrippa. Look what he says to King Agrippa. Verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa... I was not disobedient. I love that. Paul is saying that day, many years prior, when this risen Lord appeared to me on the road to Damascus, it changed everything. Meaning I had a new authority over my life, an authority that ruled over all other authorities in my life, and I had to obey Jesus. I had no other option. Paul preached Christ confidently. Why? Because, number one, his preaching was commanded by Christ. And you see, this is our hope. This is our calling, our confidence that God can turn a hater into a worshiper just like that. He takes the spiritually dead and as Paul later writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, he makes them new creations. It's a divine work of grace that calls something into being, something new, a new creation, something that did not previously exist. The old things under an old self and an old authority and an old master, all of those things are passed away. And in a moment, all things are becoming new. Paul says, I wasn't disobedient to that heavenly vision. Look at verse 20. What did he do to demonstrate obedience? What does it say in verse 20? But I declared, I preached, I proclaimed, first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, then throughout the regions of, all the regions of Judea, and also to the Gentiles. I declared, I preached. What did he preach? What was his message? Here we go, that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. And it's verse 21, he says, it is for this reason that the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. He's telling King Agrippa, listen, King, I want you to know that I am in captivity here before you today, not because I did anything wrong. It's because Jesus made me a preacher. And he preached Christ confidently because his preaching was commanded by Christ. Secondly, Paul demonstrates that we can preach Christ confidently because we are, number two, cared for by God. Cared for by God. Look at verse 22. He goes on. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. I can continue preaching confidently. Why? Number one, Christ commanded me. And secondly, God helps me. He cares for me. I have the help that comes from God. Isn't that awesome? He's saying, I can stand right here testifying both to small and great because God is with me. How many times have you had the opportunity to engage somebody in a gospel conversation and then ultimately succumbed to fear? You chickened out. Anybody? Anybody with me? Am I the only one? Okay. All right. We're all there. In those moments, where is my focus? It's right here, isn't it? It's on me, it's on my abilities, it's on my inadequacies, it's on my comfort, it's not on God, it's not on his character, it's not on his strength to save, and it's certainly not on the fact that he's there right with me to help me. And I believe, believers, that we can overcome our hesitancies and fears in 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 our witness if we would just grab onto this reality that God is our help. He's with us. And there are three important things that are true about every single opportunity you and I have to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Number one, that person is created in the image of God. Every person you meet is on a spiritual journey. They are designed by God to find their ultimate satisfaction in worship of their creator. You're just like them, and they're just like you. Number two, God is already at work. He's already working there. Already, long before you came on the scene, just like he was in your life. And number three, God wants to use you. And since he wants to use you, he will help you. He will help you. Look at verse 22. Paul says, I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. So you see, Paul is confident in his preaching because, number one, he was commanded by Christ. Number two, he was cared for by God. But thirdly, his message was confirmed by the scriptures. Paul says, I am saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. You understand, don't you, that when I or someone else stands behind this pulpit, or when you share with your neighbor or that friend or that co-worker or that family member, you understand that we have no authority, no confidence in ourselves. Isn't that right? The only reason that we can speak confidently of God's things is that we are saying what is aligning and agreeing with what he has already said. You see, we don't need to figure out how to convince people. You're going to drive yourself nuts trying to do that, trying to anticipate every possible response somebody might give to you. It's going to be paralyzing, and it will leave you ineffective. Do you know what will make you really confident in sharing the gospel and preaching Jesus Christ to somebody? It's this. Know the message. Know the gospel. Preach it to yourself. Know it well. Appropriate it for your own life. That's it. And what was Paul's message? Look at verse 23. That the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Listen, I believe that Paul's conversion here demonstrates clearly that the nature of our calling is proclamational church. Paul was not arrested because he built a well. He wasn't arrested because he grew a crop or was a good neighbor. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do those things. Nobody's even remotely suggesting that we shouldn't be concerned about people in need or the well-being of society. We should have compassion ministries among us. But listen, those things should never substitute the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The nature of our calling is proclamation. And you can preach Christ confidently because the Lord is in charge and he, the Lord, As Paul says back in our text in Acts 13, if you turn back there, he has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light. Number one, preach Christ confident. Number two, you can preach Christ authentically. Authentically. You probably note in your Bibles that the verse there, verse 47, is set apart in quotes, don't you? And that's indicating that Paul is quoting another scripture. In fact, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. And since time is short, I'm going to tell you what I think is going on here. Paul, I believe, is appealing to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah as a source for both the authority of Jesus' own preaching, as well as for the authorization for the preaching that Christ's followers would be sent to do in his name. So in Isaiah 49, verse 6, He's addressing the suffering servant. We understand that Jesus is the object of that passage. Simeon affirms it in Luke chapter two, verse thirty-two, where Simeon declares, "For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Listen, a light for revelation to the Gentiles." Paul, we already saw before Agrippa confirmed this when he told Agrippa that Jesus would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles, and John confirms it in chapter 1 of his gospel, where he writes, In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And, none, and at the end, Jesus himself said it in John chapter 8, when he said, You know, I am what? The light of the world. And so the Father made the Son, according to Isaiah, as a light for the nations. And this much I think we understand clearly. We preach because Jesus is himself authentically the true light. Israel was supposed to be that light to the Gentile world, and they failed in their role. And so God sent Jesus, the Son of God, to be the true light. But in our text, in Acts chapter 13, verse 47, look closely. It doesn't just say that Jesus is the light. He actually says, the Lord commanded us us to be a light to the nations is he misapplying isaiah no not at all in fact i think paul clearly understood that jesus is the true light to the nations but he also understood that jesus had commanded and commissioned his followers to bear his light to bear his name to proclaim his gospel to be his ambassadors of his kingdom you get the point that's you and me That's why Paul said, the Lord commanded us. When you are saved by Christ, you become a light. And you don't need to do anything but share with others what the true light has done for you. You can preach Christ authentically. Number three, you can preach Christ indiscriminately. Indiscriminately. He says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles. See, now we need to climb for a moment into the mind of the first century Jew just to sense the weight of what he's saying here. On the one hand, the passage uh, that he quotes from Isaiah has direct application to Jesus and to those who bear his name, us. But there's also a sense in which it is applied to the Jewish nation particularly. The Jews were actually called by God to be his megaphone to the world. We know this because all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, we see that it was always God's plan for his people to, to bless the nations. Look at, uh, you just listened to Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, when God called Abram, he said, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He was speaking of his seed that would eventually become the Jewish nation. It was clearly God's design that his people were to be the Gentiles' light. We see God's light, heart for the nations in Psalms, like Psalm 96 where we read, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous work among all peoples. As well as in Psalm 67, 1 through 3, often considered the Great Commission text of the Old Testament. Where we hear, God, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. That your way may be na- made known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. This is God's heart. But here in Antioch of Pisidia, these Jews had missed their calling. And instead of rejoicing as these Gentiles were receiving the word of the Lord and worshiping him, they were filled with jealousy. They weren't concerned about God's glory, about God's plan, but instead about their own perceived superiority. This was prejudice. Prejudice. They somehow felt deserving of God's special attention, uh, not only because of their ethnicity, but also because of how they legalistically adhered to their own strict customs and traditions that they had devised. And when they saw that these Gentiles, receiving this new preaching, were finding forgiveness and relationship with God apart from the law, that angered them. Just like Jonah was angered when God showed kindness and mercy to the Ninevites. So Paul, in saying now that he's turning to the Gentiles, that this grace of God is available to all who believe, God shows no partiality, he was making quite the statement, wasn't he? And remember who Paul was. He was a Jew. He was a persecutor of the Christians. He would have been right with this group, leading the charge of opposition, if it weren't for the grace of God that demonstrated to him that at the foot of the cross, all of us are on level playing field. The cross of Christ is, con- is inclusive and invites everyone everywhere to repent and be saved. Let me ask you, how indiscriminate are we? I want to draw out something that came up in the same Barna research study on evangelism I mentioned earlier. Among practicing Christians, they discovered in their study that two in five, that's two out of five Christians, have no non-Christian friends or family members. That's almost 40%. I'm going to throw out another number just to get us thinking. I, I think that we all, we all like really living in the greenhouse, don't we? We like this environment where it's, where it's comfortable and it's safe and it's controlled. We can grow really well. We love to cluster with others that are just like us. But listen, we need sometimes to be planted in the wild. We need to step out into the wild more often. You guys remember Bob Ross? Anybody remember Bob Ross? The joy of painting on public television? I mean, that brings back nostalgia, doesn't it? Oh, Bob Ross with his nature-loving, smooth, soothing voice, right? His big hair. Who can forget the big hair? He loved to paint little trees on the dark background. He would say he would make those trees, never an accident, pop, right? Right? He made him pop. You know, I think we need to follow his lead a little bit. We need to make the gospel light that we've been given pop by taking it into the wild, into the darkness, indiscriminately. Don't you think? Do you realize that 86% of Hindus, Muslims, and Buddhists have never had a Christian friend? Never. Do you know what that means for them? That means billions of individuals. These are people today real people, Hindus, Muslims, and Buddhists, they will go through their whole journey in this world without ever encountering someone that that could bring them the light and point them to Jesus. You and I have the gospel. We have it because somewhere between Acts 13 and today, Individual believers broke through cultural and linguistic and geographic barriers all to pass on to us a message that they had received, the good news of Jesus Christ, and they did so indiscriminately, and praise God, they did. Praise him. That brings us back to our fourth point. You must preach Christ urgently. Verse 47, he says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation. You see, until we bring salvation, there can be no salvation. Until Jesus Christ is preached, there can be no hope for the nations. That's just the reality of it. Peter himself declared in Acts chapter 4 verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ is the only way. And unless Jesus is preached by his followers with great urgency, how then will the lost be saved? How will it happen? You all know the Romans, Romans chapter 10, right? You know why it's the quintessential go-to verse for all mission sermons, don't you? Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and following, it's going to make the cut here too. Paul says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Just reflect on that with me, brothers and sisters, this morning. God has brought salvation to you, to your life. He brought it. It's his work. He did it, but it didn't happen in a vacuum, did it? God uses people people who sense the urgency of what is at stake in your life, people who allowed themselves to be burdened by the judgment of hell, eternal hell, and the lostness of your soul, so much so that they could not stay silent. God is in the business of bringing salvation to the world, and he wants to use you. And so he's sending you. And there are people in your life today that need, urgently need you to wake up to the reality of the wrath of God that rests on them because of their sin, to feel their burden, and to wake up to the calling God is giving you today to pro- proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ urgently. Will you do that? Fifthly, we must preach Christ relentlessly. Preach Christ confidently, preach Christ authentically, preach Christ indiscriminately, preach Christ urgently, and finally, preach Christ, as we see in our text, to the ends of the earth, relentlessly. Now, the ends of the earth, that's a big task. It takes planning, it takes resources, it takes people, research. By the sheer numbers of this task, as we think about it, it appears to be far outside our reach, doesn't it? I remember as a new missionary climbing up to the top of the hill near the castle in Rivoli, Italy. I'm going to put a picture of me up on the wall, a skinnier, younger version. There I am, standing at the top of the the city of Rivoli, looking out over the urban population of Turin, Italy, in northern Italy, a population center of over a million people. I remember being there and just being overwhelmed with the task in front of us. We had answered the call. We had been sent by our local church. Now our feet were on the ground, and I didn't know where to even begin. How would we even make a dent in all of this? Those were the kind of things that were swirling around in my head. You know, the task is so big that it is going to take all of God's people to accomplish. Do you believe that? That's the truth. Every single one of you here today, we need to do it. Do you realize that just in my lifetime, since I was born in 1972, the world population has more than doubled from an estimated 3.84 billion people to where it's today just under 8 billion eternal souls. And in the same time, inflationary pressures, we're not going to talk about inflation, shifting focus within churches away from supporting feet on the ground overseas missionaries, All of that means that even though the dollar amount today that is being given toward outreach and evangelism and missions globally has increased over time, when you factor in the global economy, the decreased buying power that we see today, and the increased population, we are seeing a greater need than ever, and we're using fewer resources than ever. And yet we cannot relent, can we? We must not. Why? Because the Lord has commanded us. We need to be obedient. And there can be no doubt that Paul knew Jesus' commandment repeated to the 11 disciples in Matthew chapter 28 and Luke 24, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The Lord's command to make disciples of all nations in those texts makes it clear that the scope of our task is global. And the span of our calling is until the end of the age or until Jesus returns So we could say it this way, we must preach Christ to the ends of the earth until the end of the age. Amen? That's our task. That's daunting. And so we need to be relentless. And I hope you can agree with me that this morning, without preaching Jesus Christ, we are not fulfilling our calling as his people. This world needs what? Preachers. We need to work hard To guard the nature of our calling in our churches, if we're going to stay on track today. Today's woke culture is one of the greatest attacks against the bold preaching of the church, one of the greatest attacks we face in modern times. And, church, we cannot give in to woke culture, we can't give in to the fear of being canceled. We can't give in to the fear of man. We must bow before God and have a fear of God first and obey him and bring to this world a confident, authentic, indiscriminate, urgent, and relentless word of life to the people that need it the most. It's our calling to point men to a Savior who calls all men everywhere without apology to turn from their sin to him. From their dead works to his righteousness, from their vain idols to serve the one true and living God, our Lord God. Our modern pluralistic culture, which foolishly claims, and listen, I'm going to say it out loud people are fools, fools to think that everybody has their truth. Reject that. Ironically, they cannot tolerate the authoritative and exclusive claims of the truth. And Jesus Christ is their only hope. And we must preach the gospel. And we cannot bow, we cannot bend, or give in to that mindset. We must stay on track, and we need to be strengthened in our resolve to preach Christ relentlessly from now until he returns. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? And as you do, I don't want you to miss what happens in verse 48 through 49. Luke writes, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. God's people became preachers. It was unashamed preaching that brought these people, once dead in their sins, alienated from the life of God to a place where they believed and they received eternal life. And as a result, these believers were then used of God to move his gospel further and further into the world. And it eventually landed on our doorsteps. Praise God. Believer, can I encourage you? The goal of this message was not to guilt you. It was to inspire you. God wants to use you. And he has saved you so that he can use you. And yes, we believe that God is sovereign. He is sovereign in all things. We believe that. We affirm that. We celebrate that. We praise that. And yet in his sovereignty, he has decreed a design. And the design is this, that his salvation must be brought to people in this world through preachers. And so this world needs you. People need you. They may not want it. They may resist it. They may revile you for it. They may hurt you because of it. But they need you to preach the words of life, the message of Jesus Christ to them. It's how God has mercifully intervened in your life and in my life, and it's how the gospel came to us So as we reflect on that reality, how will we respond this morning? Will you be proud of Jesus?